Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Linux Open Source and Privacy News Podcast. And this week we have more details about the ongoing work to support color profiles and HDR on Linux. We have Ubuntu making moves to better secure their personal package archive repos, also known as PPAs. And we have a security breach for KeePass, which is an open source password manager. Now we also have Cinnamon being adopted by more distributions. We have a privacy breach for Discord, a new XFC-based desktop, and Valve trying to fix big picture mode for NVIDIA users. So, as always, all the links I used are in the show notes, and as always, this show is user-supported, so if you enjoy it without ads and sponsors, please consider looking at the various ways you can support the show in the show notes as well. So, let's get into it. So, this week we got more details about the future HDR and color profile support on Linux, notably on Kwin. So, the developer in question that wrote this blog post is called Xaver Hugel, and he explained the old approach for handling color profiles, not HDR, because HDR does not exist right now on Linux, but color profiles, uh, how they were handled. And basically, you ask the user to set a color profile for their display, and then it's the application's decision to support it or not. And since most applications using X11 or even Wayland do not respect any of that or do not do anything with that information, basically, if you set a very specific color profile on your display, everything will look super wrong. Uh, they have color bending as well, because this only supports 8 bits per color channel uh, when you need at least 10 to have a decent result. And if you're using Wayland, there's basically no API to do any of this. And that's what developers are working on implementing right now. Uh, I already talked about it, I think it was two weeks ago. Uh, they had a hack fest dedicated to HDR. And so they agreed on working on an API to support color profiles and HDR on Linux. Uh, so the, the way they're going to do it is that they're going to let applications tag the content they display with a color space and some metadata. And then the compositor, the Wayland compositor, so for example, Kwin or Mutter in GNOME, will be in charge of doing the various conversions to make sure that the colors tagged by the application look right on the display using the GPU. And apps that do not implement such tagging or do not name their color space would still look right, because it would be assumed that they use sRGB, which is the case for most applications, and so the required color conversions would be done automatically for them. And so this would make sure that every app has the nice colors, the right colors, and that high dynamic range is also supported fully by content that needs it. Now, the Wayland protocol for this is under heavy development, and it is not ready. But during the recent HDR-focused hackfest, there were a few hacks implemented that already allow for some pseudo-HDR content to be played in HDR next to the desktop interface using SDR. And the latest release of Kwin for the early Plasma 6 builds can already support this by enabling a few features uh, with a few parameters that you can enter. Later, they'll work on a GUI that lets you turn these things on, but for now it's just a few variables that you need to set. So they can't say just yet when the API will be ready, when support will be complete, 
but it looks like it's progressing quickly and that there's a lot of interest into making this thing work. Uh, so it's still pretty exciting. And let's hope that other desktops that talked about implementing HDR, uh, like for example Cosmic from Pop! OS, uh, from System76, uh, will take care of this thing, of HDR, using the same Wayland-based API, because we, we do not want 20 different options to support the same thing. And if everybody could use the same one, it would be pretty cool. Now, if you use Ubuntu and you're more of a Debian package person than a Snap person, then you probably are very familiar with the good old PPA system for personal package archives. They're basically third-party repos that developers can implement to distribute their applications to users that can then add those PPAs to their system to get access to the applications that are not in Ubuntu's repos. They were basically the answer, well, they were basically the flat packs or snaps of their time. They still made use of the native packaging system uh, like Debian packages, uh, but they allowed applica application developers to distribute their own apps because having your app be accepted inside of Ubuntu's repos or Debian's repos was extremely hard and I think it's pretty much still super hard today. You could wait months and sometimes years and never be accepted in these repos. So PPAs were the answer for that. It was like, okay, you want to distribute something newer, unsupported, that us as Ubuntu do not want uh, in our main repos, you can create a PPA and distribute things. But these things have been there for a long while. And they're not as secure as they can be. So with Ubuntu 23.10, uh, Ubuntu will actually improve the security of these PPAs. Because instead of adding them as a .list file, which is stored in your sources.list.d uh, folder, they'll be added as a .sources folder, which has its own GPG key embedded in the file itself. Instead of having the .list file stored somewhere and the GPG key being stored elsewhere. This means that first, when you remove a PPA, you automatically remove its associated key, which is better because you don't have older GPG keys lying around being unused. Second, the key that is being used is unique to each PPA and cannot be reused for another one, which limits the possibilities of setting up a third-party PPA that already uses a key that is in use by another repo and then bypassing system security in a way. So this improves security. And other keys that are not embedded in the file cannot be used to sign a PPA. Only the one that the PPA comes with works. So in short, this will make these third-party repos a lot more secure. They will probably throw less errors in the command line about a key being invalid or missing. And in practice, for users, it shouldn't change anything because the command to add a PPA will be the same. You can still do it graphically in the exact same way. It's just the backend and the security that will be better. Now, of course, a PPA is still a third-party repo and it can contain packages that will update parts of your system and make stuff break. Or they could install anything in your system masquerading as a library that your system already uses. So only use them if you absolutely trust the maintainer to only upload what they say they upload. And also make sure that you can go back when you remove the PPA so your in-place upgrades aren't broken. If you have, for example, a PPA for graphics drivers, 
It might be possible that when you upgrade to the next version of Ubuntu, your system will break because you already have newer libraries than what the new Ubuntu version ships and this could create incompatibilities. Now, we're gonna talk about KeyPass, which is an open source password manager, and they suffered a security flaw that can already be exploited to recover the master password used to basically authenticate yourself and grab all your passwords from your password manager. So somebody who's able to grab your master password can basically have access to all your password. Now, this vulnerability is still unfixed in a stable release, which means it is still exploitable. It is fixed in a beta that is expected to be published to everyone before July, but for now, every version of KeePass 2.x that you use is affected by this. And the exploit using it is publicly available. But don't panic just yet, this exploit cannot be used remotely on its own. So someone would need to have access to your physical computer, have physical access to it, or they would need to have some kind of malware installed on your computer that would let them run the exploit and grab all your passwords. So it's not extremely serious unless you're wondering if someone could actually have access to your computer. Now the issue apparently affects the text box where you can type your master password to unlock your password manager. Apparently when you type a character in this text box, it leaves a string in memory uh, which stores like one character of the password. And so this means that someone who can access a dump from the KeyPass process can deduce the password from the leftover patterns. The only one they can't access is the first character you type. So they don't have a full, clear, plain text access to the password, but it's relatively easy to infer it by parsing these various dumps. This vulnerability affects for sure KeePass 2.x on Windows, so any KeePass 2 version on Windows, and very possibly also KeePass for macOS and Linux. So don't panic unless your system is already infected with something else. The, at the attacker needs to have physical access to your computer. And if your computer is already infected with something else, you probably have bigger things to worry about than this. So it's not an extremely major flaw, but it's still something that you need to be aware of. And since we're still on security problems, Discord also suffered a nice little privacy oopsie recently after malicious actors managed to compromise the account of one of their support technicians. Uh, they apparently subcontract uh, their support, uh, Discord, they, they subcontract their support to third-party companies. And one of the agents got compromised, basically, which means that attackers got access to the entire ticket queue for this person, so all the support tickets that were affected to them. And so this also includes the email address that was used to send the support ticket, and all the personal data attached to these tickets, so the contents of the message, and any attachment to the message, which is very likely to be a screenshot, a full-on screenshot, which might contain a lot of personal data, depending on what was open in the background while you were running Discord to take your screenshot of the issue you were encountering. So yeah, Discord says they deactivated the compromised account for the support agent, and that they checked for malware on their device just in case, and they also apparently helped the subcontractor to improve their security. Uh, they also said that the chances of this personal data being abused is minimal, but that you should still be on the lookout for phishing attempts or identity theft. And to know if you're affected, just look at your email inbox uh, with the email address you used to signing into Discord. Uh, if you 
are affected if your personal information was compromised you will have received an email from discord telling you about it and so basically review all your support tickets with discord and check on your screenshots to see if you shared anything weird or anything very personal and if you did try to modify that if there's a login visible or a password visible or anything try to change it as much as you can so people cannot use it uh, for anything nefarious now we're gonna move back to linux distributions and if you were looking for an alternative to centos stream because basically centos is not a stable point release anymore it's some kind of rolling release which is going to be less stable than it used to be you probably already know about alma linux and rocky linux which are basically the two main replacements for it and so both just got their updates to version 9.2 to match the exact same update on Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which these two distributions are perfect one-to-one -one compatible with. Uh, so this adds a few interesting things like support for WireGuard VPNs, uh, even with SE Linux enabled, uh, plenty of packages updates, and they still run GNOME 40 with Wayland by default. But what's really interesting is that Cinnamon will now be shipped in an official Alma Linux ISO. Uh, because yes, these distributions, Rocky Linux and Alma Linux, can be used on servers, but they're also graded for workstations. They're basically your replacement for Red Hat Enterprise Linux uh, and CentOS. So you can use them on personal computers. And so the desktop environment they use is important. And so apparently users suggested to Alma Linux, to the Alma Linux community, to include a Cinnamon edition. Uh, they suggested that on the distro's Reddit page, of all things, but apparently that hit the mark because the Alma Linux community decided that yes, they will build a Cinnamon ISO. Uh, it was already doable manually by adding a specific repo that contains Cinnamon, but having a dedicated ISO will make it easier for everyone. You don't have to have an already installed system with potentially another desktop environment already installed, to be able to install Cinnamon. You will now be able to just install Alma Linux with Cinnamon. And of course, this also means that Cinnamon will probably get testing and official support from the Alma Linux community, which is much better than using it with a third-party repo. So basically on Alma Linux, you'll get XFCE or KDE or GNOME or Cinnamon, which is cool. And we're seeing a lot more Cinnamon these days. It used to be really reserved to Mint, and like some people ran it on Arch, but now it's also available as an official Ubuntu flavor, Ubuntu Cinnamon, and now you also get it on Alma Linux, which probably makes it easier as well to install it on other Red Hat-derived uh, distributions. So it's really cool to see that this awesome desktop environment is getting more love, especially since, well, Mint ships it with all their tools, but the Ubuntu Cinnamon Edition ships it with a lot of modifications. It's basically just the cinnamon shell, but you're not getting any of the cinnamon apps. So we're gonna have to see if Alma Linux does a better job of integrating a more vanilla cinnamon experience uh, than what Ubuntu Cinnamon does. And another Linux distribution got an update. Uh, it's called Rhino Linux. It's something you probably didn't hear about much. It's basically Ubuntu, but in a rolling release model. It used to be just a simple script you ran on top of Ubuntu, uh, but now it's its own distribution uh, with its own ISO that you can install natively, uh, normally like any other distro. And so their differences with Ubuntu is, well, first the rolling release model, but they also added a new packaging tool uh, that lets you install, remove, or update packages 
from the Ubuntu repos, so dev packages, packages from Packstall, uh, also Flatpaks from Flathub, and also Snaps, all in one single tool, which is probably a good thing, because if you're going to have to interact with a lot of packaging formats, having a single syntax to know is much better. So Rhino Linux got a new beta uh, before their first stable version, which should land pretty soon, and they introduced their own desktop environment called Unicorn. Now, of course, it's not something completely new started from scratch. It's based on XFC 4.18, but it modifies it heavily enough to deserve its own name. Uh, it's basically a more user-friendly version of XFC. It looks nicer as well, at least if you like a lilac accent color on a dark mode. It looks like it's improved compared to the default XFC and it's no compositing, no window shadows or anything. So on top of XFC, they add Ulauncher, uh, which is basically like macOS's Spotlight or KRunner on KDE. It's a little window that appears in the middle of your screen. You type what you want, you press enter and it opens it. It's a launcher that can search through your files, your apps, your emails, whatever. You can enable a bunch of plugins. They also added an app grid instead of a menu which is very reminiscent of the one GNOME uses or one you could find on macOS. It's called Lightpad and it's compatible with Wayland. And they also added XF Dashboard, which is basically exactly like the GNOME Activities View or the KDE Overview with virtual desktops and all your windows displayed in an expose mode. And all these tools have been nicely integrated with their own keyboard shortcuts, like Super Plus A for the app grid, Super Plus S for the search bar, and Super Plus D for the dashboard. And it all looks very, very violet, beige, lilac, I don't really know, it, not beige. It, it's basically super light purple in a dark mode. I'm not a huge fan of the look, but it's interesting uh, because XFC as a desktop environment is not one I would personally use on a day-to-day -day basis because its vanilla version just feels way too old for me. Uh, no Wayland support, no touchpad gestures, uh, no compositor by default. You can change the window manager for a compositor to get shadows, animations, but out of the box it doesn't have it. And I just don't enjoy it all that much. I understand why people like it. Uh, it's lightweight, it's cool. But having a dedicated spin that modifies it into something, let's say, more current, more modern, is good. But at that point, with what they added on top of it, I don't quite understand why they didn't go with GNOME. Because I'm pretty sure that XFCE, once you slap a normal window manager uh, with, with shadows and compositing, once you slap a dashboard that can be invoked at the press of a button with an expose view, once you add a launcher and an apps grid, I would be very surprised if it was more lightweight than just a regular GNOME install. So why not just use what is already there and does exactly what you wanted it to? I don't know. We'll have to compare uh, performance side by side uh, when they actually release a first stable version, but I would be surprised if it was really lighter than any GNOME release which already implements all these tools. And also you would get touchpad support and better Wayland support. So I don't know. Still, it's interesting. People are still experimenting with other desktops and I really, really like it. Now, we're going to talk about a little less happy stuff. Uh, basically, every big tech company seems to think that laying people off is the best way to renew with growing profits. 
And so we've seen layoffs at uh, specifically Meta and Facebook, which I think fired 20,000 people or something. Uh, we've seen some at Microsoft. We've seen some at Google and Apple, I'm not sure. Uh, but IBM also decided that layoffs were in order. And so since IBM owns Red Hat, they also reduced their global staff by 4%. And this apparently affected Ben Cotton, which you might or might not know as the former Fedora program manager. Uh, ben was in charge of ordering things for the releases of Fedora. He managed all the proposed changes and also ensured that the schedule was respected. He was basically managing the whole release schedule for Fedora. And apparently his position will not be filled again, which means other people in the community will have to take up these responsibilities. It seems like Ben passed these responsibilities on to other people already, which is absolutely the mark of a great manager. If things can run without you, you've done your job to perfection. And it also apparently doesn't mean that Fedora would be an unimportant project for Red Hat. Uh, ben specifically said that he doesn't see any indication that his role was targeted specifically, as in Red Hat would want to reduce involvement in Fedora specifically. And he also seems to know a lot of people at Red Hat that view Fedora as a strategic project. So I just wanted to bring attention to the fact that Yes, layoffs also happen in companies working uh, on Linux and open source, unfortunately. Uh, but at least we sort of know that it shouldn't be something that will impact Fedora too much in the future. More people in the community will have more work to do, and I hope they can do it. But yeah, at least the responsibilities have been shared and stuff should proceed uh, nicely. But it's always sad to see companies that make really high profits lay off people that are actually useful because having someone to coordinate uh, the release cycle of a relatively popular distro doesn't strike me as a, as a role that needs to be cut, honestly, especially since Fedora for Red Hat is kind of their first entry. Like it lets people test things out and see if they like that RPM ecosystem, the way the distro is set up, the various tools that it implements, like systemd, se Linux, and stuff like that. And if they like it, why not use Red Hat Enterprise Linux for their companies? I think it's a it's a good project for them. So, and I'm pretty sure Red Hat made a lot of profits this year. So, yeah, pretty pretty disappointing to see. And I hope Ben will find something cool to work on uh, in the future because he apparently did an amazing job with Fedora because every release that's out seems to be really good. Now, we also have some news about uh, open source software, specifically in the AI space. Uh, OpenAI is not known for really living up to their name as they haven't published an open source uh, language model since 2019. They basically got all up in open source until ChatGPT4 and until Microsoft started investing in the company. As soon as Microsoft started investing, they kind of shut down and started developing things behind closed doors. But it seems that this is going to change a little bit because OpenAI is preparing to release a new open source language model to the public. Uh, so it's interesting. We don't really know if it's going to be linked to ChatGPT or to something else, but it would be very surprising if it wasn't. Uh, and this probably comes from the fact that open source models seem to be catching up quite fast, or even in some cases exceeding the models that are being developed uh, in a proprietary fashion behind closed doors. 
and also because Meta unveiled their own language model called Llama, which has been also generously leaked online even before Meta could open it fully or process like people that applied to get access to their model. It just leaked with a torrent and everybody's got access to it and it probably kickstarted a lot of other open source development efforts, to be honest. So I think OpenAI really doesn't have a choice if they want to stay relevant in that space. They have to open up their model because with more eyes on them and more involvement, there's no doubt that it will progress faster. And apparently some cybersecurity researchers think that open sourcing these models is a big mistake. They think that it will create a lot of problems by making phishing and scam attempts even easier than they already were. But I would be very surprised if that was the case. I mean, you can already do pretty efficient scams and phishing attempts without AI, and you already have a bunch of AI models you can use or AI tools that you can use for scams and phishing, whether they're open source or not. So from where I'm standing, it's always going to be much better if all AI related research is done in the open uh, because at least now you can make sure that the tools using these models are as fair as possible and that the unavoidable biases can be ironed out before this technology becomes super widespread. I would trust an open AI, not, not as in the company, but as an open source AI model and tool I would trust that way more. I mean, I would trust it a little bit, which is more than I can say from AI from Google or Microsoft, which I will never use. I refuse. I will not use something that is developed in closed doors where no one can see how it's developed. No one can see what they implemented in it. No one can see the data sets. No way. I I'm not using that to get my information or to base my work upon it. It would be completely insane. So... Open AI, as in open source AI, is definitely the way to go. So it's cool to see open AI going back to their roots and, uh, and not being completely proprietary anymore. Now, speaking of Microsoft, it looks like they can't catch a break. Uh, Windows is now even more privacy invasive uh, than it already was. Uh, Microsoft now will scan inside of your password protected zip archives for malware which might sound like a sane practice uh, because like password protected zip archives are very often used to distribute malicious software. But this also means that Microsoft knows how to open your password protected zip archives. Uh, generally, they are protected for a reason, like you don't want people to snoop in them, but your OS will be able to do it, including files stored in OneDrive or a Microsoft 365 cloud. And apparently the anti-malware tool can just read the passwords from the various emails that might contain them. So for example, if somebody sent you a password protected zip archive and told you in an email, the password is so-and-so, well, then yeah, Defender or the, the anti-malware tool in Windows will just read the email and grab that password and use it to unzip the file and look into it, which is super nosy and very, very invasive. And it will also harm research on malware because these password-protected archives were used all the time by researchers to exchange malware without it being flagged because previously a password-protected zip archive could not be flagged because it could not be opened. And so now they won't be able to share these because they will be flagged and detected and blocked. 
And it also gives the perfect opportunity to remind people that password-protected zip archives in Windows are trivially easy to bypass and open. Uh, the encryption method is completely stupid and very simple to decrypt. So you should absolutely not use that for sensible documents because it takes all of five minutes to open one up even without the password. Uh, use 7-zip and their encrypted method, it's apparently way, way better. But yeah, no big surprise here, just another privacy breach uh, from Windows. They just like to snoop around. And interestingly, looking and scanning at files that are stored online for detecting malware is pretty much what Apple was publicly crucified for uh, when they tried to implement the same thing, uh, where they wanted to scan all cloud-uploaded photos on, uh, on iCloud photos uh, for child pornography. It's the exact same thing. They will look inside all of your own personal files to try and find harmful content. Well, Microsoft does that, and I'm not seeing the same amount of outrage, which is weird. And speaking of Apple, they might get another kick in the behind because they are now under investigation for planned obsolescence. Well, I say kick in the behind, but they're gonna get a fine of oh, like 100 million euros and they're not even going to care about it. They're gonna pay it and not do anything about it. But still, they're under investigation in France uh, for planned obsolescence. There was a complaint filed by an association called Alt à l'obsolescence programmée, which means halt planned obsolescence in French. Uh, basically, they were saying that Apple associates the serial numbers of the repair parts that are used to repair iPhones with the serial numbers of the phone itself. So Apple can then restrict repairs by non-approved shops, or they can even remotely degrade the performance of a device repaired using generic and non-official components. Now, this investigation has just started, so we'll probably have to wait a long while uh, before it reaches any conclusion. But it's still interesting to see how this might evolve, because Apple has already been condemned in France for something quite similar. Uh, basically, when they updated your old iPhone, and I'm putting updated in quotes, they updated your old iPhone with a software update and they voluntarily reduced the performance of your CPU, your iPhone would perform way worse than it was because they wanted to save battery life on the device. They basically prioritized, hey, see, my iPhone is five years old and it still runs uh, with its original battery. But yeah, but it runs at half the speeds uh, because yeah, a software update did that to your iPhone. And they didn't inform consumers about this. There was a whole thing back then, I think it was in 2017. And so they had to inform everyone that yes, with software updates, you will see reduced performance on your phone. And it was another way of participating into planned obsolescence. Because instead of letting users say, you know what, my battery might be old, I should change it. It was like, hey, my battery is just as good as before, but my phone feels pretty old. It feels slow nowadays. I should buy a new one. If your phone was just as zippy as it was before, but your battery life was half of what it was when you bought it, you would just assume you need a battery replacement. When your phone gets super slow, you just assume you need a new phone. So they were condemned for that, but it was like a 25 million euros fine, which for Apple is ridiculously small. It's probably not even one day of business. So let's hope that this complaint reaches its conclusion, because if Apple does match uh, repair part serial numbers with your iPhone serial number, this might be a privacy breach as well, on top of being a... a 
like a problem with repairs and letting users just repair their phones, which they should have the right to do. Okay, and now we're going to complete uh, this podcast with the gaming news. So first, it looks like there's some contradictory information about the support for Linux uh, by Roblox. Last week, I reported that a Roblox developer flat out said we're not going to have a native Roblox client on Linux and we're not going to support Wine or Proton. It's too much work. Uh, There's risk with cheating. We're not going to do it. But now they, all Roblox, they also said that while they don't have any plans for a native Linux client, they do want to support Wine. So yeah, we don't really know what to think about this. They say it looks possible. They say that they see a lot of value in it, which is the exact opposite of what they were saying last week. And they also said that they will never guarantee Wine will work. So it's basically more like a, hey, come on, don't be mad. We're probably going to try and make it work, but if it doesn't work right, like, you're on your own. Still, it's cool to see them supporting it, and it makes total sense. Like, you've got at least 3 million Linux gamers in the wild just with the Steam Deck. It would be weird not to try and support this community. And honestly, it's not a lot of work. With with what Proton can do right now and what what Wine can do, with just supporting a basic launcher, which is probably just an Electron app that launches an executable, you don't have a lot of work to do there. So saying that it was too much work, not worth it, I just don't believe it. I just think they said, we're not interested. They saw the outcry and they decided to go back on it because, well, it costs nothing to say you're going to support it. And it basically costs nothing to support Proton uh, for your for your clients. Now, we also had the release of Wine 8.8, which is the basis for Proton. Uh, they have done more work to support the PE executable format in the PostScript driver. So probably printing will be more reliable uh, using Windows apps on Linux. And initial support for loading ARM64 EC modules has also been added, which might mean more support for ARM CPUs in Wine in the future, which is also nice. And the developers also fixed 18 bugs, including for games like Devil May Cry, for Rise of Nations, or for the Battle.net launcher. Now we also have an update to Lutris, which now supports Proton to run games. Uh, If you don't know, Lutris is some kind of library manager where you can add games from Steam, from the Windows client of Battle.net, Ubisoft Launcher, EA Launcher, and the like. Uh, And so they also had their own installers for various games if you don't own them on a specific platform. But these installers generally used Wine or Wine GE or a modified version of Wine. Now they can actually support Proton, which is probably going to increase compatibility and performance significantly. They also added the integration for Battle.net games, which means that if you install the Battle.net launcher in Lutris, it will now be able to automatically detect all your games on Battle.net and you can install them or run them from the same interface as with all the others. And they also have that same integration for itch.io. They also added support for ModDB links in various installers, which means that people can now create easy two, three-click installers for games, which also will include the necessary mods that they wanted to include, which is cool. And all the preference windows have been restyled to be more legible in the app. There are also a bunch of performance improvements, a bunch of bug fixes and usability tweaks, 
Basically, if you used Lutris before, you definitely want that update. And if you're someone who has a ton of games on Windows on a lot of different launchers, uh, like the Epic Game Store, Ubisoft Connect, EA, etc., Lutris is probably your best bet to try and integrate all of them into a single place and be able to launch them correctly. Uh, it's, it's a great all-in-one launcher. Valve also got sued uh, by a company called Immersion Corporation, which seems to be what we call a non-practicing entity, which is a nice name for a patent troll. Uh, but it's a patent troll that has a nice history of, well, nice, a not nice history of winning its legal battles. They had already sued uh, Xiaomi, Meta, Sony, and Microsoft, and won against them uh, for patents on haptics. So now they're suing Valve because they say that they infringed on a few of their patents relative to haptics and vibration in the Steam Deck and in the Valve Index as well. So it, it took them a while uh, to, to focus on that because the Index has been out for ages now. So unless Valve implemented haptics in a completely innovative and new way, they probably will have to fork out some royalties for every Steam Deck unit sold and for every Steam Deck that they'll sell in the future, which unfortunately might have an impact on the price of their hardware because they're probably not making much profit on every Steam Deck sold. They probably even lose a little bit of money on each one. So if they have to add like, let's say 10 bucks of royalties or even just five bucks of royalties over a million units per year or 1.5 million units per year, that's a lot of money that they're going to be losing. And I am no lawyer. I don't know anything about this. So I cannot judge if these patents are legitimate or not, if they're super vague and have been created like in, in the past five years, whereas haptics in controllers have existed for like 20 years. Uh, so we'll have to see how this thing evolves and if it's settled or if it reaches a court, if Valve caves in or if they decided to, I don't know, fight the lawsuit. We'll have to see. But still, it's something to watch for. And still on the topic of Valve, it looks like they're really trying to fix the new big picture mode on NVIDIA GPUs. If you tried running this new big picture mode, which is basically the Steam Deck interface, uh, and you're an NVIDIA user on Linux, you probably noticed that it's basically unusable. Uh, it stutters all the time. It's horrible. It's, it's like five frames per second for navigating. The menu sometimes doesn't appear. It's just completely unusable. And until now, we didn't really know if Valve even wanted to change that because the Steam Deck runs on an AMD GPU and they didn't really seem like they were willing to do anything about it. But now in the latest Steam beta, there are a few notes that indicate that they worked on that. So first they say that they fixed high DPI scaling on NVIDIA GPUs because they recently implemented that in a previous beta uh, where the Steam desktop client will follow the global scaling factor that you set in GNOME or KDE. And they also said that they enabled hardware acceleration for big picture mode for NVIDIA GPUs and implemented some fixes for performance. They also say that it can introduce some visual artifacts. And personally, I am on the beta channel for the Steam client on my desktop, which runs an NVIDIA GPU. So when I read that, I tried it, and I can safely say that it's still unusable. Uh, on an NVIDIA GPU, big picture mode just doesn't work right. It's stuttery, it's atrocious. You will manage to open a game page and launch a game. It will work, but it's just 
a horrible experience. And I would recommend you use the dash old big picture mode uh, launcher option in your shortcut to Steam if you use an NVIDIA GPU and you want a big picture mode because the old big picture mode works perfectly with NVIDIA GPUs on Linux and it's still completely usable. The only thing you don't have is access to your Steam collections. If you have not created any of these, you don't care. And so the old big picture mode will still work fine for now until they disable it completely and replace it with the new one. Let's hope that they will have fixed every issue they have with NVIDIA until then. Uh, because it's a big blocker not only for the Steam client and, and big picture on Linux, but also probably for releasing SteamOS 3 to everyone. Because right now, releasing SteamOS 3 would mean that it would not work correctly. It would not be in a stable, usable state for any computer running an NVIDIA GPU, which would put a big dent in the usability of this distribution. Once they fix the problems with NVIDIA GPUs, I don't see why they couldn't. Uh, ship SteamOS and open it up to everyone. So it's probably one of the remaining big blockers for them. So this will conclude this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, there are plenty of ways to support the show in the show notes. You, you know how this works. And as always, all the links I use to write this podcast and record it are in the show notes as well with the time codes if you want to move from chapter to chapter. That's probably too late for this podcast, but for the next one, you'll know. There are time codes in there if your podcast player doesn't support chapters using a JSON file. So thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!